I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we're doing this time round, well, we're talking about dead bodies, cadavers, if you like, and they are a surprisingly flexible thing that you get in pop culture. For example, think of your standard police procedural, where you have the cops coming in and having an entire conversation over a dead body. This this always puts a smile in my face that you would have somebody going, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm in Silence of the Lambs. And it's like, oh, yeah, what are you playing? I'm playing dead guy, naked dead guy on a gurney. And it's like, okay, fine, that was not a big role, but it certainly took guts, Jen says politely. So you get things like that. You get various horror movies and, of course, classic horror stories such as Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. If you remember, the monster itself was put together with different human parts so that the surgery could be easier. That's why the the monster was bigger. Then you get something like a, a comedy, for example. Weekend at Bernie's, hilariously using a dead corpse to keep people entertained in almost family-friendly fun that's very 80s comedy. But there is obviously a real side to this. There is a need for bodies to be used for medical purposes. And this has led to stories, myths, history maybe, and indeed a movie around the legendary, Jim says in inverted commas, Burke and Hare, the, the story in Scotland in the 1820s, which led to a 2010 movie of that same name, which I'm not going to talk about because we have on this occasion somebody in here to talk to us about this. Now, normally when I say that, it then leads to Greg jumping in and going, hello. Hello, uh, it's Greg. I'm here. Hello, Greg is here. Greg is here as we speak. But you might have noticed slightly different sound quality. This isn't the way I normally do it because we have a guest. This is the first time we've had somebody who isn't just Jem or Greg on the podcast. Paul, hello. Welcome. Hello, thank you for thank you for having me on and, and allowing me to get a particular obsession of mine completely off my chest. Thank you. That's great. And of course, this is almost a, a bit of reverse therapy for you because if you don't know, Paul is well, we have half of History Rage podcast here today. And do you want to perhaps explain to our listeners who may not necessarily know the the podcast what the concept is behind History Rage and how it's really taken off? So it started kind of accidentally in that my 
myself and my co-host Kyle were both living historians, both reenactors, and we were at the Chalk Valley History Festival. And we wanted to do some video work. So we thought, what can we do? And the idea landed on us that just grab speakers where we can and let's just have three minutes of rant from them. So we grabbed people like James Holland and people like Guy Walters and so forth. And we just we just stuck the camera on and said, right, tell us the one historical fact you wish everyone would just stop believing. And you would not believe the blue touch paper that that lit it really did. We got back home and we thought that was that was absolutely brilliant. Even though it wasn't, you know, as video work, it wasn't that great. You can still see it on YouTube. But we then, it then occurred to us that I live in West Yorkshire. Kyle lives in Staffordshire. The bulk of history goes on in the South. And so we were suddenly left with, well, how the hell do we expand on this? And that's really when the podcast was born because we thought, oh, we could do this remotely. We could expand this out to interviews. So so that became the the basis of our podcast. And we launched about two, two and a half years ago with Kat Irving, who is, uh, she's from the Surgeon Hall Museum. She's very linked to what we're going to be talking about tonight. She has the best job title I've come across in the history world, which is Human Remains Conservator. Uh, and we asked her, as we ask every guest, you know, what is the one thing you wish everyone would just stop believing? And then we we let them rant. And some of the myths that we're blasting out of the water, I mean, we had... We had James Holland come on to do the Battle of Britain was not a close, wrong thing. It was an absolute whipping of the Luftwaffe. We've had the Hannah Matthews, curator of the Mary Rose Museum, to come on. Don't know the Mary Rose did not sink on her maiden voyage. We've had Alex Churchill on and Andy Locke, who came on to go, the First World War is nothing like the poetry. And will you stop all saying it's all lines led by donkeys? And so on and so on and so on. And we thought we'd actually run out of friends in the history world in about sort of a series and a half we thought we know about 15 people and we can get them up at last night i recorded episode 115 and i still have another 17 <laughs> historians in the queue and i have a waiting list of about Sorry, another six 70 or 17 17 i've because i've taken a two-month break from recruiting anyone into this but they do keep banging my door down with the most bizarre of things uh, and sometimes you find that they're, you know, you think that's a bit niche, but it takes off. One of our most successful, a really great guy called uh, Francis Young. He's like reader for the Church of England. He has access to the Vatican archives. And we were in touch with him and he said, yes, I'd like to, I'd, I'd like to rage that paganism didn't go underground in the Middle Ages. Uh, and I thought, well, I need the guests. Uh, and do you know what? I'm a, that man has got such a following. He came on and did a massive rant about how just because something's showing its bottom on the side of a church doesn't mean it's some rebel symbol made by underground pagans. And, and a full-on hour of rage from one of the politest men I've ever met. And it, it was absolutely legendary. And it is just snowballed from there. Uh, and I'm very proud of it. But it, I have to say, it's completely accidental. As some of the greatest inventions in history are. So there you go, everybody. So that, that's the idea around History Rage. I've actually been on it twice, although at this time of recording, because he's got such a backlog, I think my second episode is coming out in 2024. So it hasn't actually come out yet, I think. Uh, yes, you're, you're due to come out on... You will be released to our Patreon subscribers on the 15th of January and on general release on the 15th of April. And just a little spoiler warning for you listeners... He is doing a great rant about pirates. <laughs> Who made pirates child-friendly? 
There we go. So you get a, you get a plug there on the History Rage side. Please do. Li- I mean, look, if you like this podcast, you're going to like that one. It's a bit more adult. A stronger language is used, but it's usually used in an extremely funny way. I I, I have just finished your, your double episodes on Napoleon, for example. And yeah, there was a, a lot of cleansing going on by the yeah. ranting happening there, which I 100% agree with. But anyway, let's move all that to one side. Let's go back to your very first episode, because that's something close to your heart and is what this episode's actually about. Yeah, so this is my personal obsession, which is, as you mentioned, the infamous Birken Hare. Because what do we know about Birken Hare? They are probably the UK's, dare I even say it, the world's most famous pair of body snatchers. They're renowned for it. There are pubs named after them. There's a Birken Hare strip club in Edinburgh. And yet... For all of the fame, and you see them on pub sites digging up graves and everything like that, they are not body snatchers. Honestly, ladies and gentlemen, if you take nothing else away from this podcast, please drill this one message into your head. Burke and Hare are not body snatchers. They never dug up a grave in their life. They are simply serial killers. Now, they did bump people off. They did murder people and then sell the bodies to a Dr. Robert Knox, who at the time was doing Cat Irving's job, the Human Remains Conservator at the Surgeon's Hall. Is he that true? Throw... Is... That is true, yes. He was the Conservator. Of... Uh, she, she's got quite literally skin in the game in on, in this story. Yes, she's absolutely. She has got Robert Knox's job. Were I in Scotland at the time that I was at university, I was an anatomy student, so I would have been attending the lectures. I would have been neck deep in body snatching and the trade. After all, the first body snatchers that we have on record are actually two Aberdeen University students who needed to dissect a cadaver in order to pass their surgeon's exams. Now, I don't know about you, when I was at university, but I really struggled to get to a nine o'clock lecture, let alone get up at two o'clock in the morning and go out and dig up a corpse. Yeah, I, for me, they passed the they, they passed the exam already uh, yeah. on the practical side of things. I did my history degree with the Open University, so we had to bring our own cadavers, dig them up <laughs> at home. <laughs> Well, we actually do a show over the course of the summer where we demonstrate how you snatch a body. And I'll go into kind of like how you do it a little later on. But yeah, my my wife really did not understand who she was marrying until like I moved several. It's not a first date conversation, is it? It's one that you save until you know you've you've met date three and yeah, (laughs) date three. Now let's take a step back though. So. What I mean, it's obvious what body snatching is, but why was it happening? And why does it seem to all be going on in Scotland? I mean, other countries have dead people. Yes, it's not just Scotland. It, it is Scotland that gets the fame for, for the murders. But that's not to say that the Westport murders, the Birkin Hare murders, were in fact the only people that were doing that. But they were just the people that coined the phrase because there's a much later incident in London called the London Birkings. Recognise the name? Ah. Yes. But we need to go quite back in time actually to see when body snatching starts to become a thing because like most unpleasant things in history you can pin this on henry the eighth it's all the way back to tudor (laughs) and henry the eighth is the first monarch basically who puts into law that the royal college of physicians as it was at the time can be given four cadavers per year from the gallows for the subjects of medical research and medical testing and teaching of students whatever they want to do with them really that's kind of like decent and advances the course of science and that that's absolutely fine because what you do is you've got a legal method of getting cadavers into surgery rooms which is via the gallows 
So you can be sentenced to hang. Um, you can also be sentenced to be hanged and dissected. Literally a fate worse than death. And I'll come to that a little bit more in detail on that a little later on. But that's fine for the next kind of few hundred years and things like that. Because what we do in history is we hang a lot of people particularly between 1750 and about 1810. Um, now, Jem, how are you on criminal history? No, pretty much a blank spot for me. Okay, so ever heard of the bloody code? No. Right then. So between 1750 and 1810, this is kind of the golden age of the hangman. So we have, at that point, almost 225 separate capital hanging offences on the British statute books. That we hang a lot of people, about 500 of them a year. Now, I'm going to play a little game with you chaps, if I may. Greg, do feel free to join in. I am hoping this is the game I just thought of, because I want to know what these 225 offences are. <laughs> well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to list you five crimes. Four of them will get you hanged. And I'm going to ask you at the end, once I've given you the list, which ones you think are going to be delivering you to the noose. Okay, so crime number one. Being in a public park with a blackened face. Crime number two. <laughs> well, I mean, today that's a yeah, get you cancelled, yeah. yeah. <laughs> crime number two. Impersonating a Chelsea pensioner. Crime number three. Harming a horse. Crime number four keeping the company of gypsies for more than a month. And crime number five, theft to the value of more than five shillings. Now, I made one of those up. Okay. Okay. So so one of those is made up, but the other four are going to get you swinging. Well, well I think we have to be slightly strategic here. We can't go for the same one. Okay. No, I agree, because there's honour to be taken here. And I'm just going to say, the, the one about the uh, keeping the companies of gypsies for more than a month just seems to me like, well, why? Why specifically a month? What happens at that turnover where you go, oh, 29 days, I'd better <laughs> pop out now, otherwise I'm going to be hanged. I'd just... <laughs> okay, so I, I like that one too. You you go for the, the gypsy one. Oh, 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 no. I was only going for my joke on that one. That's that's not my final take. If you want okay. to take as the answer... The one I'm going with, because um, you know me, Jim, vegetarian, I like the kind treatment of animals, but I do not believe that they would have put anyone to death for harming a horse, because see, you know, well, see, they I used to beat their animals no, no end, I think. You see, I'm going to sort of say to that one, Greg, because horses will largely be owned by the aristocracy, it's the sort of thing of... You scratch my Porsche, I'm going to kill you, kind of thing. Uh, oh, so. I, oh, I see harming somebody else's horse. I, see, I, well, I tell you what, I'm going to I'm going to put my pin in in harming a horse. That's what I'm, okay, you're going to go for harming a horse. Uh, I'm going to go for the gypsy one. So, Paul, uh, okay. did we get close? Drum roll. Greg is correct. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> So why would you stay more than 29 days with gypsies? Uh, if you lived with them, uh, and it was a it, it, it was means that they would use to identify, you know, individuals within the gypsy community. But if anybody had seen the Channel 4 show, My Big Fat Gypsy Wedding, of course, the dress designer on that show would have been hanged in 1809. 
Okay, there we go. So yeah, there's a result of that. There are some other really bizarre ones as well, like that have a certain level of logic behind them. So like damaging Westminster or Fulham Bridge, for example, that, that will get you hacked. Because let's be honest, there are two bridges at that time across the Thames. You are going to cripple the London economy by putting one of those bridges out of action. Uh, chopping down trees, damaging fish ponds, these are all the things that will get you hanged as well. Uh, and that, it's, it's important to remember what can get you hanged and what can't. Now, from about 1810 onwards, we, we take this and we get kind of a lot more enlightened and a lot more civilised and we start to develop alternative punishments. The death penalty is still there, but we start to take a lot of these smaller offences and transport or imprison if you're getting into towards the late Georgian period as it stems into early Victorian. So the result of this is that we hang a lot fewer people. In fact, we go from hanging about 500 people a year to hanging about 50 people a year. Wow. But the truth is, during this period, what we're also doing is we're rapidly increasing the amount of surgical schools that we've got. So we are rapidly increasing the amount of cadavers that are required and basically demand way outstrips supply as a result. So we go and do, I mean, just to take Astley Cooper alone, okay, he's a London surgeon. He has somewhere in the region of 120 students attending every demonstration. Okay, and he's one of probably five major teaching organizations in London. And I'm interested, you... if, if there is supplies outstripping demand, did nobody think to go to the authorities and saying, we need more bodies? Well, yes, but what are you going to do? They're not going to exactly repeal transportation. Oh, I, sorry. No, but I thought because of Henry VIII, they were only allowed four a year. No, you can take them from the gallows. It was a minimum oh, okay. of four a year. Un unlimited yeah. from the gallows. Yes. <laughs> right. Okay, from the you. gallows. There's been a 90% drop of supply from gallowed men. Got it. Yes. Why so, was it that the uh, that the gallows was such an important source? Was it because of the religious side? People obviously wouldn't want to donate their bodies, or did it relate to the fact that obviously someone has been hung by the gallows? They're a, a normal physical body. They're not well. Then mo no more disease than usual. Would it be because of that, or because people just obviously didn't want to be cut up after they were dead for religious reasons? So you're you're right on that score. It's very, it's very much a time where you can't leave your body to science because that view that you, in order to get into the afterlife, in whichever direction that you may be going, you need to have pretty much the intact body. Okay, it, it can be wounded, but it's not going to be cut up with the organs left in jars and things like that. And this is what makes it a fate worse than death. This is why certain people, William Burke being one of them, are sentenced to be hanged and dissected is it actually part of the criminal sentence to do that so, so from the point of view of yeah you're hung you're done in this life you're done in the next life and that's it yeah it's, it's like a theory behind hanging drawing and quartering it, it, it does exactly the same thing except when you're hanging drawing and quartering somebody it is not for medical science it is to kind of instill horror and deterrent in everybody else but it's a similar, similar principle as to why it was feared so much I mean, so, remember so. that the last hanging drawing... I know the first one was William Wallace, but I think the last one was sort of in the 1700s. Am I right on that, or do, do you not know? Um, it's, it, it sounds quite reasonable. I know I know, hanging drawing quartering appears in Peep's Diary. Oh, okay. Uh, and I think I think there was one 
later than that, I think. The one that always sticks in my mind is that the last burning at the stake was 1830. Nice. Top on the crime, top on the causes of crime. Yeah. I was just throwing, while we're on that subject, I do have to throw a little fact in there for you. When was the last guillotining? Oh, no, I know that. 1977. Yes, yes. So the last, uh, September 1977. It, the last, it, it yeah. happened after Star Wars came yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah, you could have your arm cut off with a lightsaber before they stop cutting your head off with a guillotine. That is an impressive fact. So yeah, so going back to, we've now got this kind of supply and demand problem. And so you get a lot of surgeons and a lot of students actually then going and getting the bodies themselves out of local churchyards and so forth, and then dissecting them and then passing their exams. But the trouble is, is while it's not illegal, it's quite immoral and it does damage a certain doctor's reputation. And so, so you, what you need is professional help. And that's where this black market in human cadavers starts and really expands. Now, you mentioned why is it all going on in Scotland? I mean, Edinburgh was one of the surgical teaching centers of the United Kingdom at the time. London was also another one. Birmingham was starting up as well. So this is going on all over the place. This is not just primarily a Scottish thing. Okay, it's just that Edinburgh is, is at the time is all pretty much closed in. There's a lot of churchyards around. And it's very easy to go into Greyfriars Kirkyard, grab yourself a body and literally walk, I've done it, at night to Robert Knox's office. Hang on, let's just be clear about this. When he says he's done it, I don't think you actually mean, Paul, that you took a body and walked it down the corridor. Or uh, no, but I, I have walked down there at about two <laughs> o'clock in the morning down the Edinburgh High Street to make sure that I wasn't being seen. Okay. It's quite easy to do. <laughs> even, even now, it's quite easy to do. I, I feel there's got to be an experiment here. I'm thinking we head up to Edinburgh, we lay Jim down as a body, and we see if we can get him through Edinburgh from the churchyard to Knox's office without anyone stopping us. I think we don't even need to carry Jem. I can provide you with with my prop corpse that we use for doing the body snatching demonstrations. Nice, nice. Yeah. It's a date. It's probably a third date, but it's a date. <laughs> so yeah, Jem just these... pointing out that Paul has obviously an extremely understanding wife. In fact, I'm guessing that. All three of us have extremely understanding wives. Amen, preacher. Amen. <laughs> so let's go, go back to this um, uh, This black market expands yeah. and it becomes real organised crime. And I mean real organised crime because the amount of money you can make from body snatching is absolutely unreal. And one of the ways that we know this, we know this from an actual primary source in London, a man called Joshua Naples. He was part of a gang known as the Borough Gang by Ben Crouch, and they were notorious body snatchers around London, particularly visiting cemeteries like Bethnal Green, um, Bunsall Fields. And what they were doing is they were taking the bodies to places like St. Thomas's and Guy's Hospital and Bart's and John Hunter's teaching hospital at Great Windmill Street. And Joshua Naples actually kept what's known as the Diary of a Body Snatcher, but it's pretty much an account book of that gang over a year. So we know how many bodies they were stealing. We know what gender the body was. We know how old the body roughly was in terms of was it an adult, was it a child, was it an adolescent. We know where they were stealing them from. We know how much they were selling them for, and we know who took as well. This is not in code. This is just written down there. So we know all of the doctors that are at 
that that are up to their necks in this. And there is there is an entry where they divide up the money between them. Now this is after a week. Okay, that is twenty one pounds and nine shillings, and I think six pence per week in eighteen twenty one. Now, just to put that into a little bit of perspective here, okay, the you could put that through any sort of typical inflation calculator, and it wouldn't really give you any sort of an. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say that probably sounds like how much a small house would be. Well, what I did was, in order to kind of get this into context, what I did is I looked at the average wage of a labourer guy that's going to own a cart and a shovel okay and that is about 18 about 18 10 about 11 shillings a week okay so you look at what they're getting they're getting 39 times the average wage of a guy of their class now what i did then is i took minimum wage as we have it now multiplied that by 13 times then knocked it down because you're only body snatching for seven months of the year. So you get five months off. Remember, this is for teaching students. We do not do body snatching in the outside the academic year. Of course, yes. <laughs> so once I, once I then calculated what that amount of money looked like over a course of a seven-month period, this may surprise you, gentlemen, but you would be on £288,000 per year and you would have the same holidays that the teachers get. Now, would either of you think that you're possibly in the wrong role? <laughs> There's a few small problems there, but yeah, I, I hear you. That sounds pretty lucrative. It, it is tempting, isn't it? And that's that's each across a gang of six. So you can imagine from that point the sheer amount of money that, that you can get out of this. It is incredibly lucrative. Now, on this point, because, yeah, it's clearly, you know, where there's a gap, there's money and nature of balls, vacuum, etc. I have seen in museums, but I'm well aware that sometimes museums mislabel things or there's been sort of like perpetration of myths of things like a coffin gun, where the idea is antibody snatching, you pull up the lid, there's a <laughs> shotgun primed and it blows off the guy's face or something like that. And there's also cages for the coffins. Is that real? Yes, absolutely real um body snatching defense is is incredible you can start at the lower end and this features in a case that i was looking into that's in my local area in leeds which the surprising thing about leeds is at the time we have no teaching hospitals there is absolutely no reason why body snatching should go on in leeds until you realize that we are right next door to the great north road and the place that bodies are wanted is edinburgh and london and as a result Leeds and the West Yorkshire area becomes a mail order hub for cadavers. Nice. Nice. So you take steps. Now, one of those, you can do the poor man's defense, which one of those was uh, to place kind of white pebbles on the top of a grave. And what that did is it show you if the grave had been disturbed. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. 
For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Uh, that didn't really work out for anybody because what it also did was show all the body snatchers where the fresh body was. Yeah. You can then layer straw in between the soil as you bury the body. So you do a layer of soil, layer of straw, layer of soil, layer of straw. Now, body snatchers, rule one of body snatching is always use a wooden shovel because it makes virtually no noise. You know, the digging a grave with a metal shovel makes a very distinct grave diggy style noise, which if you notice that walking past your local churchyard at two o'clock in the morning is going to create suspicion. So you'd use a wooden shovel, and it's almost impossible to get a wooden shovel through that layer of straw. I know. I've tried it. As a result, that one can work. Then you can go up a level. You get what are known as coffin collars. The, I believe the Hunterian Museum has examples of this. But that is basically it's an iron collar with two bolt holes on this, rather like the Frankenstein that you mentioned earlier. And what you do is you basically you screw the body to the base of the coffin so that if they're going to try and get it out, they can't get the body out, it's screwed to the coffin. The key thing about being a body snatcher is time. Nobody has got their, while nobody needs a corpse that's got a head on it, nobody has the time to actually get rid of the head just to get the body out. So that's coffin collars. Then you get more slabs, which are like giant concrete slabs that go over the top of your grave. And you can rent them from the church for 14 days. Because 14 days, your body will have decomposed enough that a surgeon is not interested in it anymore. Um, we occasionally see in the diary where they turn up that they've they've uncovered a body that's just a touch too far gone. And it just says thing bad in there. So you can rent those from the church and the church will take it back after 14 days and your loved one should be safe. Then you get the mort safe, as you've alluded to there, the cage. The one that you always see on the internet. It's got a picture of a grave with a cage over the top of it. And, and you have this idea that it's there to keep the vampire in. It's like, no, it is there to keep the body in the ground, but it's there to stop the body snatcher getting in. Because this is really dark economics, really. But when you, if you're a body snatcher and you turn up in a graveyard, and you know that there there's been re, three recent funerals. So you know where your three recent graves are. And you're going to go in and you're going to look at those three graves and you're going to go for one. Now, you're going to pick the one that doesn't have a hoining great cage over the top of it. That's mm. more time and effort that you want to put in. Okay, It's the same thing with like burglar alarms and, and like locks on doors. It's not, yes. can they get through? You can get through anything. The question is, is it an easy target? Yeah, what you are wanting to do effectively by putting a mort safe into the ground around it is not just keep your loved one safe, but basically make the one next door a much more tempting target. 
And it's those so, body snatchers are going to come out with something. With all of this, the you talk about the wooden shovels to stop people hearing. So if you're out digging up the body and somebody comes over, what is the punishment if you are actually caught in the act of taking a body? Now, that's actually an interesting point. And would you mind if I just completed the defence? Because you will enjoy defence against body snatching. I will come back to that very interesting point. Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So you're going mort safe. Um, you can see some beautiful examples of this in Scotland, the Clooney Lord mort safes. And there are still three very well-preserved mort safes that are in Greyfriars Kirkyard in Edinburgh. Uh, if you want to go up a further level from that, you can have what's known as a caged lair. A cage lair would, say, guard a family plot. So you would put a giant cage over three, four graves, some tombs, etc. There's three beautiful examples of this in Glasgow Cathedral. And for those of you that may be listening abroad or aren't going to Glasgow anytime soon, here's a thing for you, because Glasgow Cathedral have put all their graveyard paths on Google Street View. So you can go and zoom in on Google Glasgow Cathedral, select Street View, and take a walk around and actually see those cage layers still in place today. Now, those are the sensible ones. Now, you mentioned the coffin gun. Okay, so the cemetery gun as it's known. There is a beautiful example of this in Preston Hall Museum in Stockton-on-Tees. And that is exactly what it says on the tin. It is basically probably the most expensive and the most useless method of defeating a body snatcher because there is a giant blindingly obvious musket on top of a headstone attached to a tripwire that goes into the ground and the idea being is that when the shovel hits the tripwire the gun goes off and blows your head off okay now the thing is they're kind of swivel mounted so you can just turn them around or you can just (laughs) cut the tripwire it's remarkably easy body snatchers are not thick they have really perfected their art so while that cops I thought they were in the coffin so that when people and I get your point that they're they're stupid because you're not gonna know it till you get down to it. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like revenge rather than actual stopping the, the, yeah. the grind. Now what you are talking about here is not British, but it does exist. Oh, okay. So there is a patent lodged in the US patent office for the beautifully titled Coffin Torpedo. Nice. And what this is, is this is you create your coffin and you line it with metal, foil, etc. and so forth. And then you you are running a charge through it, potentially via some form of battery or cell. I don't know. I've not actually viewed the actual patent. I've seen kind of camera shots of it and things like that. But the idea being is that that runs a circuit around the coffin. And when that circuit breaks, a spark is created, the coffin is filled with gunpowder, and boom, the whole lot goes off. Now, this is, yep, this is an American invention, because if you want to do something insane in history, you need to either look to America or look to Germany, and they are going to be your winners in that score. America did have quite the problem with body snatching for surgery, but also it goes way beyond the the sort of death of body snatching over here what they do is they kidnap bodies and ransom them back to families and so charlie chaplin's body was stolen for example there was an operation to steal the body of abraham lincoln that the u.s secret service or its equivalent at the time put a stop to that so yeah america does have some somewhat insane defenses to it okay all right well let's go back to well we've done the defenses so let's go back to greg's what happens if you're caught red-handed okay 
not much, is <laughs> to be perfectly honest, uh, in that what you're dealing with here sounds abhorrent. It sounds horrific. It is. It isn't a crime. And if I go back to our list of crimes that I mentioned earlier, yeah, code, this creates a very, very curious thing that you see in graveyards where body snatchers have been affected. And that is that when you open a coffin or you open the grave or, or we have reports from when these have been discovered to, that the body's been missing, all the stuff that was buried with the body is still there. So if I take the first case that I ever looked at, which was the body of a 15-year-old girl called Martha Roddy, um, and this was my lockdown obsession because I, I'd read a throwaway line in a brilliant book. Anybody out there is as a passing interest in body snatching or wants to know more, then get the book Body Snatchers by Susie Lennox. Absolutely brilliant historian, but also she's an archivist. It's one of the best indexed books I've ever read. And there was a local case in there which said body of a 15-year-old girl, Martha Roddy, was stolen from a churchyard in Armley, and the body was returned to its original grave after her uncle posted a £50 reward, which is actually 12 times what the body was sold for. And I set on to thought, she deserves more than this. So I set on to find everything I could about this. And I ended up finding out when she was stolen, who stole her, how much they sold her for, who bought it, where the body was discovered, where the body was returned to. And eventually, after a year of solid crawling around, trying to get churches to help me in this, I actually managed to find the grave. So my one case where I've got the complete journey. But when they actually discovered that she was missing, the, the report shows that the coffin had been broken open. The coffin had not been taken out of the ground. The coffin had been broken open. But the linen burial shroud that she was buried in and her tortoiseshell comb and a couple of items of jewellery were still in the coffin. And the reason for this is like rule three of body snatching is only take the body. Because one of the basic tenets and principles of anti-slavery legislation is nobody could own a body. And so if your body cannot be owned, it is not an asset that you can be permanently deprived of, which is the legal definition of theft. Oh, that is clever. I love yeah. a little loophole in the middle Isn't of it just, this as well. Yeah. And so you would find that a lot of body snatchers would leave things like that behind because that can be the difference between a £10 fine, a short spell in York Castle Jail, hanging, or seven years transportation to Australia or America. Right. Okay. Uh, we yeah, have a okay. we have a body snatcher in Essex. A chap, I think his name was Thomas Smith. I would have to go and look the case up to be absolutely bang on. But he stole the body and he couldn't get the ring off the finger. Now, what he should have done was just cut the finger off because surgeon wouldn't have been bothered about that and, and leave it behind. But no, he didn't. And he was caught with the body. More importantly, he was caught with the body while the body was still wearing the ring. That got him seven years to Tasmania. Right. Yeah. Okay. Now... We've been talking all this time about body snatching, and yet we're going to come to the fact that Burke and Hare weren't body snatchers. So we need to move on to them and also perhaps finish off with, and if you watch the movie, do we actually learn any of the history? So tell us about Burke and Hare's career and then start moving into the world of Simon Pegg. <laughs> so like I say, Burke and Hare are not body snatchers. So I'm not an absolute expert on Burke and Hare, but what they are is they are two kind of Irish workers now, they're not, they're not absolutely skint. You know, they're not down there. They have Hare and his wife run a lodging house in Edinburgh. 
and so they're they're renting out sort of property and space to people so they're not they're not middle class by any stretch of the imagination but they're not the sort of penury poor that that we're led to believe the the standard body snatcher or murderer may be and what happens is there's a chap in there that they call old donald who is a chap that's staying at that lodging house and he dies owing hair about three pounds and five shillings in rent ah and so wondering the pair wondering what on earth to do with the body then they go to the pub they talk to a couple of the local wrongans and they learn that dr robert Knox will buy bodies without really many questions asked particularly if they're quite fresh ones you know the fresher it is the more money you're going to get and curiously as well the more female it is you're likely to get more money we don't hang women so you've got no legal means of getting to but we don't hang women at that time we burn them because that's civilized but you uh... well i mean they are all fundamentally witches of course <laughs> indeed but it's it's because we don't hang them there's no real legal means of getting them so you've got to go to the black market same with children also people that die of specific diseases so going back what they do is they they arrange for the body to be collected you know in a coffin by an undertaker in the absolute standard way but when the undertaker comes to collect the coffin that coffin is filled with bark and old donald's body is still under the bed and then they take that to robert knox sell it and and get quite quite a lot of money for it as we as we mentioned i mean he pays them he actually pays them seven pounds ten shillings so more than covered the arrears. Oh, good Lord, more than covered it, yeah. Yes. They, they they sort of deducted the rent owed and then split the difference between themselves. And then there's a second tenant who's quite old that, that is on his way out. And that's where they do their first kill because that's where they basically ease him on his way. He isn't going to survive the night, but they're not that keen to wait. So they effectively put him out of his misery, take the body off to Robert Knox the following day, and they get more money for that. And then it becomes a vicious spiral from there. So, so that's when they—that's when they're seeing the amount of money that they can get, which in their eyes is less than human lives of people that they don't know. So, accidents are arranged. People are pushed downstairs. People are hit over the head with, you know. See, this is really interesting to me because American tourists get a lot of flack. But the point is, a they're over here and they're trying to take an interest, but. You get a story like Burke and Hare and like, you know, they're knocking them off in the house. And yet you get something like Sweeney Todd, which is made up, but is a very similar story. And then you get something like Sherlock Holmes, which we literally have a statue of by Baker Street. And there is a 221B, which I believe is a kebab shop. And that's made up. But then you've got Jack the Ripper, which sounds like it's insane, but is a real series of events. And it's like, you know, if we make if we make films about all these things, how is an American from St. Louis meant to know which one's made up and which one really happened? And then we start mocking them. And that, I think that's really unfair because this does sound almost like it's made up. Yeah. <laughs> it also sounds like Jim has just gone on to the History Rage podcast. He's got his ranting going now. Being polite. I was being nice. But yeah, so then, because I'm aware of time's getting away from us here, Paul. So let's bring in the movie then, okay? Like I said, I've been talking a lot recently about things like Napoleon. 
I have also literally written a book, Hollywood and History, which is all about inaccuracies in movies. So just because it's set in a time, just because it's got their name in the title, that's no indicator that they've done any effort whatsoever. And as I'm aware, Burke and Hare, the, the movie is actually Andy Serkis and Simon Pegg, and it's kind of a black comedy. So yeah. I, I have a hunch it might air more towards Weekend at Bernie's than Saving Private Ryan. But what are your thoughts? So I, I've watched it. And I, I have to say, I enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I switched my historian head off apart from a few areas, but I enjoyed it. I mean, this is this is John. I wasn't expecting historical accuracy when I went into it. This is John Landis. This is a guy that gave us America Werewolf in London. This is a guy that knows what to do to create a successful black comedy. And I will take my hat off to somebody that can take a pair of Scottish serial killers and make an amusing, entertaining, comedic romp out of the whole thing. Can you just for a moment imagine trying to do something like Carry On Yorkshire Ripper? Okay, yeah, good point taken. Yeah, so, so the fact that he achieves it relatively kind of tastefully and things like that, I, I was on board with. What did kind of infuriate me in terms of inaccuracies is you can see in several parts of the film that they have gone to some effort so some real effort to actually get certain things right there's an element of artistic license that i will let fly for example the whole thing is set in 1828 and they're hanging people by long drop like not until 1870 you're not yep. but i'll let that go because it's 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 dramatic and it gets the point across and you don't have to go into all the details and so forth and they have things like executioners selling bodies to surgeons I have no evidence that that was ever a thing. Uh, and then you've got these two down on their look people that come across this dead body, and then and then it spirals up from there. And they've got things like the names of the first couple of victims are right. You know, they've gone to that level. It was a lodger. It was died. It was called Old Donald. There is an amusing scene where they're rolling him down the streets of Edinburgh stuffed into a barrel, which has got to be a hat tip for the serious surgery nerds out there because when they actually deliver this body to Robert Knox, because it's been bent into the barrel, it's like it's it's bent up in a really, really awkward angle. And if anybody's a slave, anybody is a like historian of medicine out there, it is absolutely spot on for that classic painting of the person that's dying from tetanus. They're all arched and yeah, you can see it in the Surgeon Hall Museum. It's an absolute classic classic picture. And I think that is that is, that's got to have been put in there for for that sort of thing. But but while they've gone to that effort to make certain things right, there's certain things that they just change and I can't understand why. So when they take the body first of all, take the body of old Donald to Robert Knox, who's beautifully played by Tom Wilkins, and there's a negotiation and he pays them five pounds for the body. It's like why substitute the amount of money? We know, we know he was seven pounds and ten shillings. You are reducing this. Yeah, Despite yeah. The yeah. fact that you've gone to go and actually find out the guy's name, but it's a matter of public record what they what he actually bought the body for, and yet you you're reducing that, and I can't see why. There's also a scene where they're actually in Greyfriars Kirkyard, trying to dig up a body, and they go to dig the entire coffin out and find that when they open it there is a skeleton inside there and actually not a body that is viable at all now 
this is bizarre because the whole thing has a headstone so you're going to know when that person died mm. but they are trying to get across the idea that they're amateurs they're just trying their hand out of this because of course there's no evidence that they ever actually dug any grave up in the least but whereas if you look at the reality the the level of intelligence that goes on to actually do a body snatch is phenomenal um, they would use women as fake mourners and they would go along to funerals and go into wailing hysterics about, oh, there was Uncle Jim. He was wonderful. He made jam. He was a saint. And meanwhile, what they're doing is they're noting down how far the coffin is down and what that person died of, because you don't want to open up a coffin full of smallpox, for example. They would turn up at workhouses to claim the unclaimed dead, claiming as relatives. The workhouses didn't want to pay for the funerals, so they didn't ask too many questions. There is a whole network of intelligence that goes on to make sure that you actually get the right body, which, again, is this idea that we have that body snatchers are fake peasants. They're, they're not. You you look in the diaries, they have almanacs. They know what the faces of the moon are because you don't want to be doing this under a full moon. You'll get seen. So this is an example of organized crime. This, this oh, is not a, very not a crime, crime of passion, nor just sort of brute strength or anything. Their serious thought and planning has gone into it and a huge amount of moral flexibility because even if you are a criminal, I'm, I'm going to say, even amongst the criminal underworld, robbing somebody is a time-honoured tradition. But as soon as you start playing around with dead people, it it, it creates a bit of ickiness. You know, yeah. that, that is not going to be seen as as regular a, an illegal income as, like I say, robbing someone. Yeah. But if you think about the amount of money that you're going to get from holding up somebody in the street versus £288,000 a year and five months of the year off, you start to cross a lot more moral boundaries than you would have done before. But also, if you're looking at the moral boundaries of it, then you're looking at basically a victimless crime because the, the person you're digging up, they're dead, as opposed to Jim, who's going to, I don't know, become a highwayman and rob people in the, in the middle of the road make his money that way but taking money from living people as opposed to as you say the reason it's not a crime is because nobody needs that body nobody owns that body anymore and so yeah. it there is that side to it as well and as they're being stolen and given to the medical fraternity you're actually take it out this is not by the way me lodging a case for us to histories or how to do crime now apparently <laughs> All right, look, I think it, we're now at this point of the three of us trying to come up with different forms of immoral, illegal income. I'm going to have to wrap this up. Before you do, I will just I will just complete the Birkenhair story for you. Oh, go, go for it. Sorry, yes. Because if you look at the film, you know, there is this there, there is this scene at the end where William Burke is saying, oh, I did all this for this love of this woman that I met in this pub uh, and so forth, so she could be off in the theatre. And... What, what Burke does is he confesses to the crime so that everybody else can go free. This is not what happened at all. Right. In fact, once they were discovered, and they were discovered because they killed somebody that a medical student had seen four days previously in rude health. And that was, <laughs> okay. it was somebody who was attending the lecture where this woman was being dissected actually recognized her and knew the sort of people that she was dealing with and that's what led to burke and Hare and their their arrest for willful murder now both burke Hare and their wives were arrested and there was a confession to the crime but it wasn't from burke Hare confessed to all 17 murders and took king's evidence to completely pin burke into this <laughs> <laughs> 
So Hare basically grasses his partner up, gets King's immunity, and does one to America. In that beautiful irony, is hanged and dissected. And there is a lovely scene at the end, right at the end of the film, in fact, heading into the credits, once they've gone through all the people that kind of starred in it, and it zooms through a door, down a corridor, and it's in the Anatomical Museum, Teviot Place in Edinburgh. And it zooms in on the dissected skeleton of William Burke, who is still on display in that museum today. When they do public open days, you can go and see it. And I was impressed that that was in there. Because it was real, it linked to the history, even though they'd done something spectacularly sort of wrong with the story. But it linked to the real history. And the amount of hoops you've got to jump through to be able to photograph and publish photographs or film of human remains under Scottish law is phenomenal. So they've not only gone to the time to do that, they've gone to the sheer expense of doing that as well. Uh, And for that, I do admire them. So yes, he was hanged and dissected like his victims, and you can still see him today on their public open days. Oh, that that is, okay, that is the brilliant place to, to end it. That is superb. I had no idea that, okay, you've blown my mind there. So I guess the moral of this story is you can make a lot of money through illegal games, but it could end up happening to you. So just just be be careful. Paul, this has been brilliant. I hope you've enjoyed it. It hasn't I been a totally break, loved it. but it's been a chat. What do you think? I've loved it because I love. I just love banging on about body snatching. <laughs> Although you spent a fair amount of time talking about uh, a pair of serial killers. Yes, indeed. If anybody wants to see our body snatches done, we will be performing one at the Chalk Valley History Festival, which is the last week of June. And that's just outside Salisbury, Broad Chalk, epic festival. I hate to give them a plug on somebody else's podcast, but there we go. But yeah, we will be demonstrating how to snatch a body. Speaking of plugs, because, I mean, let's face it, we're not above a cheeky plug here. Can you just, it's History Rage is your podcast. And what was the book you mentioned earlier about the body snatching as well? So the book is entitled Body Snatchers. It is by Susie Lennox. I believe it is published by Pen and Sword. So you can still pick copies of them up on Amazon uh, and so forth. It's not a huge book. It's entry level and it's brilliant. And as we've discussed Understanding Wives, it's also a little tip. If you pop around someone's house and you see that on the bookshelf you know what you're getting into as well. Yeah, I, I think the important thing is if you see that on the bookshelf and they tell you the toilet is upstairs, don't go up those stairs. <laughs> okay, well, I guess I'm going to wrap up here. Everybody, thank you very much for this special episode. I hope you guys have enjoyed it too. We've had all the plugs there. History Rage, it is a great show. I've listened to it for quite some time. I've been on it and I recommend you give it. You guys give it a go. Normal service will be resumed next week. And as always, thanks very much for listening. 